Hey, everybody. Welcome to Digging Deeper, a podcast of the Glendale Road Church of Christ. I'm Stephen Hunter, the minister of the Glendale Road Church of Christ. So we're going to continue with Digging Deeper, talking about how the Bible came together. And I think you can easily make the case that there was the expectation of a New Testament. And the reason I say that is when you look at the Mosaic Covenant, there are some things that we notice. And actually, the writer of Hebrews points this out. In Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verses 18 through 21, where it says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. Then likewise he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. So when you look at the fact that there was a book of the covenant in the inauguration of the first covenant, I think it stands to reason that there would be a new covenant that would be expected. Now, unlike the first covenant, there's no tabernacle or vessels in the new covenant that are cleansed because the church and the individual Christian are God's temple. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians 3.16 and in 6.19. Nevertheless, we who make up the church are sprinkled with the Lamb's blood and contact that blood in our baptism, and in due course, that book would emerge, at least in history. Now, this perspective isn't accepted by everybody. Some scholars contend that the New Testament could not have been foreseen and was never expected. Others say that the canon wasn't created until the end of the second century. Um, But I tend to disagree with both of those propositions, and I don't mind to tell you why. I believe the, the earliest hint of a canon of Christian scriptures you can see in uh, 2 Peter 3.16, where Peter is speaking about the writings of Paul and says, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So Peter recognizes Paul's writings as on par with scripture. What he has in mind when referring to Paul's letters isn't altogether clear because Paul wrote some widely accepted letters and there were others that were attributed to him uh, that were deemed questionable. But Peter assumes that his audience knows what he's talking about, and he likely expects that they receive his letter in the same manner that they have received Paul's. That is, taking into account that he's an apostle as well. So another hint at recognizing the New Testament as authoritative before it was actually put together, uh, one is 1 Timothy 5.18, Uh, which is actually a quotation from Luke chapter 10, verse 7, which is a quotation from Deuteronomy 25, verse 4. The opening phrase says, For the scripture says, 
And so that recognizes both of those passages, Deuteronomy and Luke, as Scripture. Now, the initial phrase comes from Deuteronomy, but the rest of it is identical to Luke's wording. So, Paul's writings, uh, Peter's writings, and Luke's gospel are considered Scripture based on internal evidence from letters. Another aspect that's worth our consideration is the nature of public readings in the assembly. In several New Testament letters, there are commandments to have those, letter, those letters excuse me, read publicly. For example, Colossians 4.16, Now when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, we don't have a copy of that. Some have speculated that it might have been uh, the, the letter, uh, one of the other New Testament letters, <clears throat> but we, we don't know for sure. However, they were to read that, send it to the Laodiceans, get that letter that they had, and then read that one. So you have not only the public reading of the scripture or the letter, but you would also circulate that to churches nearby. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 27 says, I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read to all the holy brethren. And so there you have in Thessalonica. So, and there are other passages, 2 Corinthians 10, 9, Revelation 1, 3. So we're able to base the public reading of these letters and their circulation in part on how portions of the Old Testament were read in the synagogue. For example, in Luke chapter 4, verses 17 to 20, uh, Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah, and then he gives its interpretation. Also, you have Acts 13.15 and Acts 15.21. Now, some have pointed out that the Greek structure of Matthew and Mark is what you would call a liturgical structure, which means that they would have been used for year-round readings within the church. And the fact that such letters were urged to be read publicly along with Paul's command to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.13, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, that may in fact suggest that he already believed his writings were such and should be considered such. But now, the earliest historical source about a Christian worship assembly is, uh, is 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 16. And it's more about Paul addressing the, the abuses of the worship service. But in chapter 15, Paul cites in speaking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, he'll, he'll say a couple times, as the scriptures say. So that kind of leads us to believe that the scriptures were read as a part of the assembly. And of course, also, 1 Timothy is, is uh, written primarily for the assembly and the church as a whole. But there's an account, a historical account, uh, and it says this. And on the day called Sunday, all who live in cities or in the country gather together to one place. And the memoirs of the apostles or the writings of the prophets are read as long as time permits. Then, when the reader has ceased, the president verbally instructs and exhorts to the imitation of these good things. Now, what's clear from history is that Scripture was not in exclusively read in church assemblies. Some other popular writings uh, were often read in the church, but they were not acknowledged as Scripture. Uh, for example, the Shepherd of Hermas is one, and 
a letter called First Clement is another one. In the second, later second century into the third century, there's an Antiochian bishop named Serapion, and he wrote to dispel the Gospel of Peter that had been read in Roses because it had led some astray. So certain epistles were well esteemed because of the author, while others were considered to have been forgeries. So some might find the reading of non-scriptural letters in the assembly challenging. You know, I, why would they read something that isn't scripture in the assembly is, is the question. But they, these writings weren't included in the canon of the New Testament because they were not universally accepted. So when it came to determining what should be included or excluded, there were three criteria. The first, universality. Does this letter, is it universally recognized by the church as scripture? Secondly, what is the letter's connection to an apostle? So for example, Mark was not an apostle and Luke was not an apostle, but we know that Mark was a companion of Peter's. We know that Luke was a companion of Paul's. So that's why they were able to be accepted even though they were not written by apostles. And so there are some others um, that you could put in that same camp, but the direct correlation to an apostle was one of the deciding factors. The third, is it orthodox? Does it conform to what is taught as sound doctrine? And if a writing fit into all three of those categories, it was accepted into the canon of the New Testament scripture. But there's, there's a debate over another point. Some people <clears throat> will say that the church created the canon, and so authority primarily rests with the church. And this is what Catholics and Orthodox believe. And their definition of church here is meaning their clergy, the archbishops, the priests, the metropolitans, um, patriarchs, and so forth. Now, it's true that there was an assembly of church and state folks, uh, the, the king was present, and they formalized the canon, the canon, but my view is they didn't determine it so much as they acknowledged what had up to that time been regarded as scripture. Now, from my point of view, Scripture is more authoritative. And this is the great divide between how Protestants and Catholics view this matter. So, there you have a little bit of a precursor uh, as it regards the New Testament canon. And next time, we'll dig a little deeper and we'll get into how it all came together. Hope you're having a great day. Hope we'll see you soon. Take care and God bless.